everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. We're glad to have you. We have a very special gift. Her name is Mona Ernest. Mona, did I say that right? Yes. Okay, just making sure. Uh, and you have a really interesting story. I, I got to hear a bit of it at the IGO Missions Conference, and you have written a book on the subject. You travel and speak on this subject, and the subject is is that you used to be of the Islamic faith. You were a Muslim woman, and now you're a Christian. And I find this topic fascinating. I have some Muslim friends that I, I care very much about, and I've tried my best to, in small ways, have conversations here and there. I've given them my study Bible. They're, they're neighbors to ours. I go to their restaurant all the time just to spend time with them. Um, and so I really want to know how I can get to know them and communicate the gospel to them a little bit better. But uh, that being said, can you tell us a little bit about your story, about how you left the Islamic faith and became a Christian? Yeah, I sure can. Uh, so um, it, I was not looking for Jesus. Uh, I think a lot of times people say, you know, so were you looking for Jesus and tell us why you were looking for him? And um, I, I tell them that the book of Romans tells us that no one seeks God. No, not even one. I, I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was actually pretty happy where I was, or at least I thought I was. And uh, what happened is after 9-11, um, I was actually trying to be a better Muslim for the very first time in my life. And I started pouring myself into like trying to really figure out what do I believe and why do I believe it? Uh, because even in Islam, you can't live on borrowed faith. So while you are born into a Muslim family and pretty much everyone thinks that that you're born once a Muslim, always a Muslim. And that's just not the, not, not true because Muslims do believe that on judgment day, Allah is going to take a scale and um, weigh out the balances of your good deeds and your bad deeds. And I was actually quite scared of judgment day. Uh, I wasn't positive how those balances were going to balance out for me. Um, while Muslims do believe in having um, good and bad deeds, they don't have any way of accounting for any of that. So like, you don't know how much a good deed is worth. You don't know how much a bad deed is worth. You don't know how much a lie is worth or like 60 lies or a hundred lies. Um, and do those hundred lies match up to, I don't know, backstabbing or is it the same thing as adultery or murder or there's no accounting really. Um, so you you never know like where you stand. You don't know if you're quote unquote saved. That's right. It's like taking a look at your bank account and never being able to balance your books because you don't know how much has been spent and you don't know how much has been credited at any given moment. Uh, there's no accounting. And so Muslims live in fear of judgment day. Uh, at least many of the good ones do uh, because those who are aware that there is a judgment day and it's coming, and Muslims do know this, and they live in fear of it because there is no, there is no assurance. There is no way of knowing if you're ever going to make it. And even when people die at your funeral, they say, "Well, inshallah, hope you made it," or "Hope mm. that person made it." They they don't know. Uh, so there's a fear that's based. Does and any of me, 
sorry to interrupt, but does any of that kind of like lead to any kind of depression or anxiety? I, 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 if I didn't know where I stood, but I was really serious about my faith, I feel like that might lead to some kind of yeah. stress. Me. It would stress me out because I, I want to be with God. And if the whole point of all the things I'm doing is to be with him, but I never know if it's good enough. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of anxiety. Actually, um, there's anxiety and also anger for me. I didn't quite realize that uh, because I was trying to work my way. And uh, as I be- tried to put myself more into Islam, I started reading the Quran. And the Quran is actually a book of bad news. Uh, one thing that the Quran is sure about is that you're pretty much going to hell. Uh, because one in every six line talks about hellfire and damnation. It is not a book of good news. And when you are on your own for working out that faith, um, it's every man for himself. And so you're doing good deeds, but you're doing them out of fear because you don't want to go to hell. And you're doing good things for people because you think uh, there's a woman, um, a Muslim woman who said, well, when I do good deeds for you, I am getting heavenly currency. I'm gaining heavenly currency. And my response to that is, well, how do you know what the exchange rate is today? Right. And if somebody's doing good deeds just to get something good from God, then it seems like the motivation is not to be a nice person for the sake of being a nice person, but being a nice person so... Like it's like the kid that's good at school, not because they want to be smart, but because they like being known as the smart one. That's right. Yeah. And and that's not to say that Muslims aren't nice people. It's just your motivation is different. Everything has a string attached. And, and you know what? Yeah. Allah has everything that Allah does also has strings attached. And so um I don't know if you know this, but out of the ninety nine most beautiful names for Allah, not a single one of them is love. There is Allah's not going to give you love just for the sake of loving you. That's just not going to happen. And so everything is a tit for tat. You're always, you're always trying to work out your balances, always. And and that in the is always in the back of the mind of a Muslim who is striving and striving to please Allah. Um, but I'm going to tell you, it was, it was really difficult. And there were nights that. After I'd read the Quran, I was scared to go to bed because I didn't think he was going to wake me up in the morning. I thought that Allah was going to strike me dead where I was because, and I didn't know this at the time, but the Holy Spirit was convicting me so badly of my sin that I was trying to be a better Muslim and I kept falling short and kept falling short. It was like that muddy, slippery hill that you're trying to climb. And the more you try to dig your heels and and climb up, the further down you're falling. Now, I always want to be as sensitive as we can, because my hope is is that my Islamic friends would listen to this. It's the same way that I deal with like Mormonism. I hope my Mormon friends listen to it. So is subjects like this really sensitive? Is there kind of a guard up when these kind of things are brought up? Do they like, no, 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 that's not what we think. That's not what we believe. Or would, for the most part, would they agree, at least with the way that you saw it when you were in the faith? Would they agree with the way that you see it? Uh, I think I think it'd be 50-50. I think those who are really being honest would say, yes, it's a struggle. It's a struggle right. to pray five times a day. It's a struggle to keep your fast for Ramadan. It's not easy for any of them. 
Uh, it w- certainly wasn't easy for me, and I fell short. I couldn't even get up for the early morning prayers. And forget Ramadan. I can't even talk about it because it was just horrible for me. Yeah. I didn't get migraines and just it was just suffering. It was terrible. Yeah. And so I pretty much gave up on it. And and uh, that was a shameful thing. So Muslims don't want to talk about these things that are pretty shameful. No Muslim wants to admit that they stink at being a Muslim. It's just it's not as transparent as Christianity is. But then there are the other half that are not going to admit to it. And they're going to say, no, I'm pretty good. And I, on any given day, I vacillated between the two. Uh, On some days, I was completely convicted that I think I messed up on my prayers and I think I didn't do what would be um, a part of me being a good Muslim. And then on other days, I was like, you know what, I'm good. And neither one of those situations was was true. I mean, it was, uh, I guess... I guess one of the things that I really want to say is that um, I didn't know, even though I lived in the United States for 25 years, I moved to the United States when I was 10. I heard the gospel message for the very first time in my life when I was 35 years old. 25 years in the United States. Where were you born at? Um, I was born in the Middle East, and uh, I lived in Saudi Arabia, and I lived in United Arab Emirates, but my background is from, I'm from Pakistan, and so... Um, I lived in those Muslim countries, and then when I was in the United States, I never heard the gospel message. When I even heard the gospel message, um, I actually asked the pastor, I said, because he said, you know, it's God's grace that's brought you here, and I said, I don't know what that means. Mm. I spoke English. Yeah. I didn't, I'd heard the word grace. I just didn't understand what he meant, and then he defined it for me. He said, it is unmerited undeserved favor and I said well why would God do that and he said because he can yeah (laughs) and he and he does and then he shared Ephesians 2 8 and 9 with me for by grace you have been saved uh, not because of works uh, you know so that no man will boast I have some friends that were former Mormons and growing up, in a similar way that you did, it was a works-based faith, that if you do these things, then God will be happy, but there was no way—I mean, you could go through temples and all this stuff, but you still never knew where you stood. Mm-hmm. When they learned the message of grace, they became the most on-fire, excited believers, because if mm-hmm. you've grown up under the system of kind of like godly oppression, where God's kind of got his thumb on you, but like, he's good, he's loving, he's kind— but you never know if he's—I can't imagine if I never knew if my dad was happier or mad at me. Like, that would be a, a tense relationship the whole time. And so I think you kind of have that, like, growing up in that environment, because it was very cultural for you if that's where you grew up. Then this was not just the way you believed, but it was the way your whole culture kind of operated, isn't it? Yes, uh, and I'm going to just make a correction Muslims also don't see God as their father. True. Um, Because I, the first time I heard that, I kind of looked around to make sure that I heard it right. And, um, and that was with the Lord's prayer because this, you know, you say our father and I was like, wait, what did they just say? So, um, I didn't know that. And I thought that was pretty blasphemous to be quite honest. And God is not your father. He's a master. You're the slave. That's what, uh, that's actually what the Quran teaches. That's what you pray. And with that relationship, when you're praying five times a day, you have appointments with 
the creator of the universe. And if you don't hold on to those appointments, there are sins counted against you. And that was another struggle that God is going to strike me dead because I am not doing what he wants me to do. And it's all works based, all works based. And so, um, the message of grace is very unique. Um, when the pastor actually said, haven't you wondered why you are not, uh, are you wondering why you're here? And I said, yes, because I basically have no hope. And he said, oh, but there is hope. And he shared the gospel with me. And he said, you know, Mona, only Jesus Christ is the only one who is sinless. And he is the only one who can satisfy those scales yeah. on judgment day. No man can do it. How did you end up in a church? How, how, how did you get there? Because you're a Muslim, and, but you're in a Christian church. How, the sun's down at a church. Did you get lost? Yeah. 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 Well, that's a funny, it's providence. Uh, yeah. God's hand was on me. Uh, actually, when I realized that I, something was wrong, um, that I was trying to be a better Muslim and everything I was doing was actually helping me to go in an opposite way. And uh, the more I tried to say my prayers correctly, the more I wasn't waking up, the more I tried to fast for Ramadan, the more I was messing that up. Um, I just, I started actually, the anxiety level was through the roof, like I mentioned. And uh, I kind of, I pretty much gave up and I I prayed unsanctioned prayers, which is not at the five times uh, a day. And I said, God, I'm, I'm lost. I, I don't know how to please you. I don't know what to do. Like, just tell me what you want so that I can go do it. And I said, I, I'm confused. Show me the way. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm reading. I don't know how to get around this. I don't know what to do. And um, within about seven days, I just kind of woke up with this. I I tell people it was not an audible. Um, It was not even a visual, but it was like Las Vegas lights in my brain saying, um, go to church. And of course, that wasn't a message for uh, a Christian. Um, I mean, a Muslim. And so my husband was an American. He was not a Christian. I, Muslims believe that all Americans are Christians, and that's just not true. He just didn't believe in anything. And so I told my husband, I said, well, since you're Christian, you should be going to church. And he said, I'm not going to church. And he said, and I said, well, I think this message is from God. So I knew kind of a little bit of where this message might be coming from. And he said, well, maybe God's t- trying to tell you to go to church. And, uh, of course, that couldn't be the truth because— Allah wouldn't be telling a Muslim person to go to church. That's not true. And so I thought, well, maybe it's for our kids. And so I, but then how does a Muslim mom take her kids to church? And wouldn't you believe it? We were at a YMCA baseball game for the kids. And one of the people said, hey, Mona, are you taking your kids to VBS this summer? And I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, do you live in Oklahoma? And I said, well, yes. And she said, how is it that you don't know what VBS is? There are signs everywhere. And, you know, and I didn't know how to answer that. But now I know that for those who don't have eyes, they can't see. Those who don't have ears can't hear. And so I didn't know what that was. And just for those that maybe just for those that aren't in Oklahoma, VBS is Vacation Bible School. And it's like a summer kids program that we do that teaches the gospel to kids. It's just a kind of like a week long, hour long camp that we do. But yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah. And she, the woman even told me, she said, well, I said, well, what is it? And do they allow Muslims? And she said, I'm sure they would. I don't see why not. And so she said, well, and your kids get a free meal and they get a free t-shirt. Well, that's all I needed to know. So I signed them up and we ended and you up- get a break from your kids for a little bit. I kicked them to the curb is what I did. Yes. That's that's about the majority of people that come to VBS. Her parents are just like, can we get them out of the house for the summer for like five minutes? <laughs> and Muslims are the same. Yeah. There's no difference. Yeah. So, yeah. But all of that God used um, to help me to understand. And it was on the last day of that VBS. And seriously, I was not even checking my kids in. And I got a note, which is not good. Um, and so I got a note saying, hey, can we at least meet with you? And then I ended up meeting with the lady. She introduced me to the pastor. And then the pastor introduced me to the gospel. Wow. And then my life was changed. Wow. You know, uh, I love studying other faiths. And I, I've read the book uh, by Nabil Koresh, From Allah to Jesus. And you have a book as well. What's the name of your book? Um, it's called From Isa to Christ. And then mm. my author name is Mona Sabah. Okay. And that's available on Amazon and uh, wherever mm-hmm. books are sold, kind of stuff. Yes. So, Isa, that's that is uh, their way of referring to Jesus. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So, Isa comes from Isos, which is Jesus's name in Greek, mm-hmm. and so it's a shortened form in Arabic. It's I S A Isa. Okay. And that's one of the things that people might not realize is that the Quran does talk about Jesus a, a fair amount. That he's in there. There's just a very different perspective. And uh, I had to look up the verse because I didn't have it um, from memory, but it's Surah 4.157, and in that section it's talking about that Jesus would—God um, would never allow one of his prophets to be killed, essentially. That, yes, Jesus was a great prophet, but uh, if I can read it—let me look on my computer here, and it says, We killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucify him, because— but so it was made to appear to them. And I always thought that was really interesting that it was made to appear that Jesus died on the cross. Mm-hmm. Now, the claim is that God would now ever allow one of his prophets to die, but in the Old Testament, every prophet eventually dies. Right? Like so, including so, Muhammad. Including Muhammad, right? So they all die. But I always thought it was fascinating that God, in some way, made it look like Jesus died which means that he would be the actual creator of Christianity because he tricked everybody. It was so it was so convincing that all the disciples who knew Jesus the best thought Jesus actually died. So they begin to take this message out into all the world. Uh, and the Quran that comes many years later, uh, written by Muhammad, who didn't have much understanding of Christianity, that he thought the Trinity was God the Father, Mary, and Jesus, which is never been with the trinity is blasphemy yeah it's never been taught um so we we see there's kind of uh i just like well if that was the real god then he played a trick and then he's going to condemn everybody for believing something that he made them believe by making it look like jesus now do these kind of thoughts do people engage with the text in this way do they ever think this way or is it just not spoken about you can think of things this way. It's not encouraged and it's shameful for you as a Muslim to question in this way. So that's exactly what happened to me when I, after 9-11, um, I wanted to be a better Muslim. So not only was I trying to 
pray five times a day and do the things that Muslims do, but I also started wanting to read the Quran. And when I got to Surah 19, which is Surah Maryam, um, it's named for Mary, Jesus's mother. Um, the whole chapter is not about Mary. It's about Isa, Messiah. And what's also interesting is that the Quran calls Jesus Messiah. Why? Um, didn't know why. I, that made no sense to me. I didn't even know what a Messiah was, though, so it didn't figure into any of this. But um, Jesus is also called Isa ibn Maryam because of his virgin birth, that Jesus was the son of Mary because he had a miraculous birth. God said be, and he was. And so Muslims believe 100% in the virgin birth. The Quran also talks in that chapter about Jesus's miracles, about raising dead to life. And when I started reading this, I went for a spin. I, and I was reading this as a Muslim, I couldn't understand. So Muhammad, and just in contrast, so Muhammad as a prophet in Islam had, um, was an orphan, not much is known about his birth. Not much is known about even his birth parents. There's a little information there. But but he was not born of a miracle, let me tell you that. Jesus was. Um, he didn't do miracles in the way that Jesus did. He didn't heal people. He didn't bring dead to life. Jesus does. The biggest miracle that Muhammad had was to write the Quran. And um, they say that that's the ultimate revelation of Allah. But then still, for Muslims, every single Muslim also believes that Allah had three other prophets with books. So Moses had the Torah, David had the Psalms, Jesus had the Injil. And so Muhammad having the Quran to me as a Muslim was like, okay, well, three other prophets also wrote a book. So that's to me not, I mean, raising dead people to life is kind of a big deal. Uh, but writing the Quran, okay, I, I suppose that could be. And my mom said that was blasphemy for me to say that. Mm. But then also, then there was the death of Muhammad, which was questionable. So some Muslims believe he died of pneumonia. The others believe that he died of poisoning. That still wasn't, that was so confusing for me as a Muslim, because here you have Jesus in the Quran, who's not being shamed by death, but Allah is lifting him up off the cross and not allowing him to die. Why would he do that and not allow Muhammad to have the same experience. Why would he not save Muhammad, but then he saved Jesus, why? And I could not get any answers for that. And then the kicker for me though, was judgment day, because over 88% um, to 90% of the Muslim world are Sunni Muslims. I was a Sunni Muslim. Sunni Muslims believe, and the Quran actually says this, is that Jesus is coming back again. So he was coming back on judgment day why? why? He's just another prophet, understand. right? Why not Muhammad coming back, the one who was the final one? And you know. Well, and when I asked this question, finally I got nerve enough to say, okay, I got to make some sense out of this because I was going insane and my anxiety level was even worse because here I am now questioning the Quran. You don't do that as a Muslim. And uh, So not only was I messing up in all these other areas, I was now even worse. And Finally, I got up the, enough nerve to say, why, what, how does this make sense? Please help me to understand this. And I had no answers. And I had no answers because Muslims don't have any answers. I've watched probably a hundred Christian Muslim debates. I, I love debates. That's what I watch when I mow the lawn. Like it's something weird about me, but um, I've always <laughs> found Christians 
we're totally allowed to ask difficult questions. Yes. And we, in fact, it's encouraged that we test yes. everything, that we find what is good and we let go of every kind of evil, that that critical examination of Scripture. I always welcome somebody who's an atheist. I was like, you can examine the Scripture as closely as you want, and it always holds up. Mm-hmm. And Muslims, um, those that participate in this kind of dialogue, are very quick to combat Scripture. But I don't find the same level of criticism ever applied to the Quran. Like it seems, it just seems as though, from my perspective, and I don't want to um, insult any of my friends of saying this, but that their God uh, is really, really picky about, I, I'm not even, I haven't read the Quran because I didn't read it in its original language. I have to read an English translation, so I'm not getting the full picture. If I really want to read it, uh, I pray, but I don't pray facing a certain way. I don't know why God would need me to pray facing a direction. If God is omnipresent, like we believe, he's everywhere. Why Why would that kind of stuff matter? And I just feel like those kind of questions aren't really encouraged. In fact, it seems like you would say they're most likely discouraged. Yeah, so when I was seven years old, um, my mom, my mom's mom, my grandmother was teaching me how to pray. And that's normal, like seven, eight, you start learning how to pray 84% of the Muslim world doesn't speak Arabic as their mother tongue. Only 16% of the nations are have Arabic. And so Pakistanis don't speak Arabic. They speak Urdu. And um, my parents, though, are fluent in Arabic. And so my, my grandmother, who spoke Urdu, she was teaching me how to pray in Arabic. And I said, nope, not going to do it. And so, of course, she whacked me on the head and said, you will do it because you're a Muslim and all Muslims pray. You have to. It's one of the pillars. And so I said, I'm not going to do it. And she said, so she took me to my mom, rightly so. And she said, um, this is a disobedient child and you need to, to fix this mess. And so my mom said, well, what's going on? And I said, I don't understand what I'm saying. Why should I say things that I'm not understanding? And she said, well, you're speaking Arabic, Mona. You're speaking in a different language. And I said, I know what Arabic is, but I don't know what I'm saying. And so she said, well, God knows what you're saying, and that's good enough. And I said, my dad was standing there, and I, and my dad always, he, he loves to brag. So he brags about how many languages he speaks. And I was seven again. And so I said, Daddy, how many languages do you speak? And he said, well, you know, you know I speak five and I said, what languages are they? And he rattles them off. And I said, then why is Allah only speaking Arabic? Mm. And they said, go to your room. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, why would God want me to pray, but I don't even know what I'm praying? How am I going to know if he hears or answers? Like, if I prayed for something, but I don't know what I said, how do, like, God would get no glory for what he actually did because I don't know what I asked. Well, and apologetics wise, I know uh, you you have a heart for that. I mean, many people say, well, that's exactly the same thing as Catholics when the Bible was in Latin and everybody was praying masses in Latin. In fact, some churches in the United States had it all the way up until the 1960s. So how do you how is that any different? It's not. It's not any different. But God doesn't want us to just babble. He wants to have a relationship with us. And you know what's beautiful about the Bible? It's been translated in more languages than any other book. And so we know from the book of Acts that, that when the Holy Spirit comes, 
he speaks multiple languages. And guess what? Arabic was the last language in that whole thing. And God is so beautiful. And I hope that if there are Muslims who are listening, that they hear if God is omniscient, he created our minds. If we can handle multiple languages, why can't God? Now, the Muslims, they, they'll believe in the Old Testament for the most part, right? Mm. Is the mm. Tower of Babel a part of no. that story? Because I always no. love, in the Old Testament, uh, for those who don't know, the Tower of Babel is where God separates man and everybody kind of develops their own language. And that's what I love about Acts. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel, where now everybody hears God in their own language because God could mix up, God could do whatever he wants. And so, yeah, if Jesus comes back, we'll all hear or all understand the message in the same language because God is more than bilingual. He's multilingual and he can speak whatever he wants. He created language. (laughs) He spoke the world into motion. He speaks a child into motion in his mother's womb. I mean... Of course he can speak more than one language, and of course he can understand you when you pray something different. I mean, I think now that I understand who God is, I I mean, what gives him more glory? To know that he is omniscient and he can do all things or to limit him? I just don't understand why he was so limited. And that is the question that I had asked my father at such a young age to say, why? Why is he only speaking one language when you can speak multiple? That makes no sense to me. Yeah. So I imagine as you had this God moment and the Holy Spirit began to work in your life and these truths came alive to you that had to cause some kind of conflict in your family. Yes. And I want to just back up a bit. Um, the, The truth came through the gospel message. I had I had many Christians in my life. And these Christians did not share the the words of the gospel. And Romans 10 also tells us how will they know, how will they believe if no one speaks or preaches. And so we are called in the Great Commission to go and make disciples, but we're supposed to be sharing the gospel message as well. And so Romans 10 is saying, go and speak the words of the gospel because in Jesus Christ, I mean, who is the Word of God, the Word of God brings life into a person. We don't bring life. We bring the message of life. It's it's the Holy Spirit, the, the person, the third person of the Trinity who brings dead people to life. And so when the words of the gospel were shared, I cannot tell you what that did to me. All those things that didn't make sense in the Quran all the information that I was lacking. I mean, you were just asking me about Tower of Babel. The Quran has some information, but it has a lot missing. It's like having a few dots, but no line to connect them. And so when the gospel was shared with me, all of those dots made sense to me because I could not reconcile the fact that there was something special about Isa Masih, Isa Ibn Maryam. He was set apart and until I heard the gospel message, I realized how set apart he was. Every religion, so I I think there's only three viable religions that could ever possibly exist. So, like, if we look at the world that we live in, there's immaterial, unchanging, universal constants, like math and logic and all that stuff, and people who listen to this podcast know exactly where I'm going with, with this. But uh, So that means if there is a God, 
he has to be immaterial, unchanging, universal, and constant. You can get rid of all the isms, Buddhism, Hinduism, none of those gods could possibly exist. But then that gives you the god of Judaism, the god of Islam, and the god of Christianity. And all three of those differ on who is Jesus. Some say the Messiah hasn't come. Some say the Messiah was a man. And we say that Messiah was God himself. And I think there's a reason the the largest faiths in the world, in many ways, piggyback on Christianity. Because Christianity comes before Muhammad. It, we, we had the message. I love studying. We're studying Luke at our church right now. And it's Luke going around interviewing eyewitnesses and talking about these things. And if they were wrong, they could disprove them. They could say, no, this isn't what happened. But how much later after these events does Muhammad write the Quran? Well, Muhammad was born in 570 AD and he died in 632. That's a Um, long time. A long time. And the pinnacle of his prophethood was at 610. So if we just use 610 AD and Jesus Christ dying on the cross somewhere between 30 AD to 33 it's yeah. a long time. Yeah. And um, I just, I think that um, what you're saying is is valid. Uh, what I really thought about was, you know, one of the good questions we can ask our Muslim friends is, who do you say Jesus is? And by the way, that's the same question that Jesus asks his disciples in the gospel message. He says, who do you say I am? And these were men who had been hanging out with him for three years, and only one got it right. Right. And so I think that is a good question to start a conversation, not just with a Muslim, but honestly with anybody. Um, Some people would say he's a good guy, and others would say he's a wonderful prophet. And many times, even as a Muslim, I would have said, I believe that Jesus Christ is a prophet and I actually respect him more than you. That was a normal response that I would give to others um, who were Christians. And really it would shut down the conversation because they didn't know what I was saying. Um, but I think we uh, don't, don't be daunted by that. Keep going and really ask a person, you know, who do you say he is? And I think it's going to give you a good idea of, of where they're at. Do so. Sometimes knowing what to say is important, but also sometimes knowing what we shouldn't say. There's a lot of stereotypes. Um, there's a lot of negative, very negative stereotypes that my Muslim neighbors, my family lives a block away from a mosque. Like so, they're all in this area, and I can see the damage stereotypes have done to them. You know, how can we first begin by what? What are some things that we should not say? or not ask? So the first thing is that stereotypes exist both ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are stereotypes that Muslims have about Christians Mm -hmm. as well. And of course, um, stereotypes that Christians have about Muslims. I think um, there is a time, I'm all about apologetics, but there is a time for evangelism and then there's a time for apologetics. And, and during evangelism, you might be asked to defend your faith and, you know, with God leading you and, the, you know, trusting on the Holy Spirit, go ahead and defend the faith if that is what you're being called to do. But I personally pray uh, when I'm meeting somebody in an evangelistic way where I just want to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, what I do is I, I try not to get into an argument with a Muslim brother or sister. I I just, 
I think that sometimes we get really um, get our our feelings hurt. We get bogged down in, in minutia. Um, I think that we need to be respectful. I think respect is a non-negotiable. Um, they're made in the image of God. I think we need to remember that as well. Um, I think um, disrespecting their prophet is a bad thing to do. I think also disrespecting the Quran is a bad thing to do. And so for that reason and for that purpose, I I really depend upon the scriptures because for us, the scriptures is what gives life and that is the word of God. And so the more I can uh, point a Muslim person to what the scriptures say, I think that's a really um, great place to go. I also think that um, asking a lot of questions is, that's what Jesus did with every single person he met. Um, find out a little bit more and also um, develop a relationship with this person. You might actually end up with a friend. How about right. that? Yeah. Uh, and a friend usually who cooks really great food. And I think that <laughs> Christians are missing out left and right. I'm not saying you, though. I'm just saying that these people can cook. And so from from a Pakistani to a Bangladeshi to an Arab, you get a chance to um, get learn hospitality like you've never learned anywhere in America. Uh, Muslims know how to how to be hospitable from the Eastern culture. Muslims also know how to, um, you know, there is a sense of respect and honoring a friend. Um, so I think those are all good things. I don't think I addressed any stereotypes, but no, it's good. I just think if you treat somebody like a human being, like we ought to, and that that's not just for a Muslim, that's anybody. And even I think uh, what I've seen role modeled for me is during the fast or something like that, go mow their yard when they're oh, not doing any work. And then when they thank you, be you know, one of the things that when we give out clothes here at our church, and we always say we want to give generously because God's given generously to us, that, well, we can be generous. We're not doing this because it will add to the scales and give us a better chance. We yeah. already, I, like, I'm, I'm assured my salvation. I know exactly where I stand right now in the grace of God because of the work done by Jesus. So he's been so gracious to me, it motivates me to be gracious. And it's not a... I'm going to be gracious, but hope God sees this one, right? I can be secretly gracious, so I could do it, never even tell anybody, and God would accredit to me. So I think serving your neighbor, um, loving your neighbor that is of the Muslim faith, uh, I, I, I make it a point to go out of my way to go eat at their restaurants or visit with them whenever I get the chance, and to be that friend, right? So um, friendship evangelism is the most effective evangelism. Well, yes, and friendship evangelism with the purpose of sharing the gospel is definitely um, the key. Uh, but I'm also going to just add, uh, I guess there was a pastor, somebody shared this with me, their pastor um, asked everybody in the church to take out a blank piece of paper and draw tic-tac-toe. And they said, put your house in the middle. Now name every neighbor their first name who is around you. It's not just... It's not just Muslims. We are just not getting out of our home. Right. I mean, go out there and do what God has called you to do. And that is share the grace and the love that he has shown us, the mercy that he has shown us, um, to go and share that and be made known and live as children of the light that bring out the light of Christ. That's what we're called to do. People are always scared to talk to somebody of another faith because they're worried, what if I don't know enough? Well, 
A, you probably there's going to be some point where you don't know enough. You don't know all of it. But um, this fear that we have, A, you're not trusting that God can give you what you need. And if you know your own faith, it doesn't, you don't need, like, I don't necessarily need to have read and memorized the Quran. Right. Uh, I, I know the Book of Mormon inside and out. I can quote it, right? But I don't even use that because I don't, I don't need, as long as I know what I believe and I know my scriptures, I can tell a lie easily because I know the truth. So once you know the truth, you can, you know, discern a lie really easily. So, yeah, be in your word, but also be in your neighbor's house and share the word that God is sharing with you. Amen. I, I appreciate your time. Um, is there anything la- that you would like to end with? Is there anything like to, you can sell a book, you can plug a website, whatever it is you'd like to do? Well, um, there are some um, billboards that are popping up all across the United States um, that are put out by um, Islamic agencies. And um, when one came up in our neck of the woods, um, my phone just started blowing up and people were very mad about it. And um, the response was anger, even from my friends who know how much of a heart I have for Muslims, because my whole family is Muslim for now. And um, I, I took a look at the web, at the billboards, and uh, basically they ask questions about Islam, and and really um, they they direct you to an Islamic website that will answer these questions. Um, I would love to direct your listeners to my website. It's monasabahbooks.com. So it's M-O-N-A-S-A-B-A-H books, B-O-O-K-S.com. And, um, or you could just type in Mona Sabah. Um, I give some, I guess, a different perspective on it, on how to answer that. Personally, I see the billboards as an invitation for conversation. Right. Um, and I thank God for that. I'm like, sweet. Now we can talk to Muslims about this and just even start a conversation by saying, hey, did you see that billboard that your people put up? So let's talk about it. And just to invite them into a conversation and say, tell me, tell me your beliefs and, and tell me what you believe and why you believe it. Um, so I don't see it as a threat. I see it as an invitation. We use all things for God's glory. And so my message to Christians is don't be afraid. And you might be rejected, but so is Jesus. You might screw it up, but God is so much bigger than that. When you go in his power, his word will not return void. He promises us that in the book of Isaiah. And so go in his power, um, go and bring, and don't, don't be scared because ultimately Muslims are also scared of you. I, I think they don't know. They they don't know what they don't know. Right. Mona, I, we have very different backgrounds, but you and I share something very important in common. We were dead in our sins. We stood guilty before God by the blood of Christ. We've been saved. And because of that, we both want to see other people be set free. So I thank you for the ministry that you're doing. Uh, I love the way that you are empowering people to share the gospel and that the gospel is front and center in everything that you say and do. So thank you for taking time out of your day to do this, and uh, God bless you. Thank you so much.